It's good to have you here this morning as we continue in our series in the book of 2 Timothy. We'll continue in our series of sharing some Reformation stories. In 1553, Queen Mary ascended the throne of England. In subsequent four years, she had at least 288 people put to death often by burning at the stake for their religious convictions. To history, she became known as Bloody Mary, although in truth, she killed far fewer people than her father did. It was the godliness of many of her victims that made their death stand out. Mary's father, King Henry VIII, had separated the Church of England from the Roman Catholic Church, but he had not reformed the church's practices or doctrines. On Henry's death, his young son Edward became king. Many of Edward's advisors tried to move the English church in the direction of a more Bible-based Christianity. And two such men were Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer was born around the year 1485 at Thurcaston, England. He attended Cambridge and there was acquainted with the writings of John Wycliffe and Martin Luther. But he was raised a devout Catholic and did all in his power to oppose the influence of the Reformation. Latimer's conversion was brought about by the means of Thomas Bilney. Bilney noticed that Latimer was intelligent and a good speaker. He began to pray that God would convert Latimer and use him to promote the truth of Reformation. Interestingly, Bilney went into Latimer's study and asked him to hear his confession. Latimer agreed, thinking that perhaps Bilney might be returning back to the Catholic religion. But during the confession, Latimer was so affected by Bilney's faith in Christ that he began to question him about it. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, he was converted immediately to true faith. He said the peace he had felt when he believed that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God that take away the sins of the world overwhelmed him. He gave up his studies and became a scholar of the Reformation doctrines. Seriously, friends, he was saved by Bilney giving his confession. Praise the Lord. I mean, the humor of God in that. You're all going to visit the Catholic church in town, aren't you, this week? Nicholas Ridley was born in Northumberland and would also attend Cambridge University. Like Latimer, his views of the Roman Catholic Church changed while he was studying there. The, Nicholas, or the scholar Nicholas Ridley had been a chaplain to King Henry VIII and was the Bishop of London under his son Edward. He was a preacher beloved of his congregation whose very life portrayed the truths of Christian doctrines he taught. John Fox, and you need Fox's Book of Martyrs if you don't have it, John Fox writes, people flocked to the church to listen to his sermons, swarming about him like bees to honey, coveting the sweet flowers and wholesome nectar of the doctrines that he not only preached, but demonstrated by his life. In his own household, he had daily Bible readings and encouraged scripture memory among his people. Hugh Latimer also became an influential preacher under King Edward's reign. He was an earnest student of the Bible and also, and as Bishop of Worcester, he encouraged the scriptures to be known in English by the people. His sermons emphasized that men should serve the Lord with a true heart and inward affection, not just with outward show. Latimer's personal life also reinforced his preaching. He was renowned for his works, especially his visitation to prisons. When Mary became Queen of England, she worked to bring England back to the Roman Catholic Church. One of her first acts was to arrest Bishop Ridley, Bishop Latimer, and Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. After serving time in the Tower of London, the three were taken to Oxford in September of 1555 to be examined by the Lord's Commissioner in Oxford's Divinity School. 
When Ridley was asked if he believed the Pope was the heir to the authority of Peter as the foundation of the church, he replied that the church was not built on any man, but on the truth Peter confessed, that Christ was the Son of God. Ridley said he could not honor the Pope in Rome since the papacy was seeking its own glory, not the glory of God. Neither Ridley nor Latimer could accept the Roman Catholic Mass as the continual sacrifice of Christ. Latimer told the commissioners, Christ made one offering and sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, and that a perfect sacrifice. Neither neither there be nor can there be any other propitiatory sacrifice. These opinions were deeply offensive to Roman Catholic theologians, and Mary was on a mission to end their lives and to snuff out their witness. Both Latimer and Ridley had prepared themselves for persecution during the Reformation time. They knew that what they spoke and believed would send them to death but they kept pressing into Jesus. They kept learning and growing and teaching. They could see the writing on the wall. They weren't shocked when they were arrested. They knew that persecution was coming and they were ready for the ride. Does the expectation of persecution surprise you as a Christian? Is that something that you're prepared for? The Apostle Paul expected persecution right from the start as the Lord would communicate through his servant. He said in Acts, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul knew that it was his life to be exceedingly so, and he knows that this was what's in store for his disciple Timothy, that he would face persecution, that he should expect it. And while he waits, he needed to keep growing in godliness. He needed to keep pursuing Christ. Last week, we looked at the first nine verses of 2 Timothy 3 of the worthless lives of the false teachers. And this week, we're gonna look at the worthy life to emulate. And I wanna give you an encouragement, friends. It is significant <clears throat> that you are here this morning, gathered to worship together with the saints, because this is our weekly celebration of victory. That the battle will soon be over because the war is won. Jesus, the victor, the enemy is defeated and our future is secure because of our conquering king who is going to return. We do that every week, just so you know. You're more than welcome to come gather together with the saints as we reflect again that Jesus won. He is risen. This is why we worship. And this morning we've worshiped this morning through the word. We've read the word, we've prayed the word, we've sung the word, and now we're gonna sit under the preaching of the word. We are truly a Bible church. We find our hope and our understanding through reading and studying the Bible. And if you're new to our church, this is the capstone of our gathered time of worship, preaching, declaring God's word, and I would encourage you to not disengage, but press in and hear from God from his word. We've provided Bibles in your seats because it's crucial for you to follow as we preach, as I preach God's word. So I wanna encourage you to have a Bible open and be ready. We're gonna spend the next 40 to 45 minutes in God's word, unpacking these verses and applying to our lives. So follow along as I read 2 Timothy chapter three, looking at verses 10 through 15. And for using those Bibles that are provided, it's on page 936. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, 
my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Would you join me as I pray? God, we thank you that you brought us through another week away, now gathered together as saints to worship. We thank you this morning for your word that guides us and reforms us and molds us into the image of your son, Jesus. And I ask that you will help your people here, you open their ears and soften their hearts and strengthen their resolve to leave this place to serve you with a mighty reliance upon your spirit for your honor and for your glory. And I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. If you're one to take notes, there's an outline that was provided with your bulletin, and there's three points this morning. First is the godly conduct that Paul is instructing Timothy. If you remember, Paul is writing this letter to his beloved disciple Timothy from the prison dungeon in, in Rome. Paul is awaiting his execution. He only has a few more days left to live on this earth, and his last endeavor is to encourage his disciple to keep serving the Lord no matter the circumstances. What would you write if you knew that you would die soon? He just finished explaining and warning Timothy in the first few verses of the chapter of the ministry of the false teachers, even though there are many who seek to destroy the work of the church and the work of the gospel. And now he switches gears to encourage Timothy and what he, what he and how he should, he should live as a minister of the gospel. Timothy is to keep on growing in his godly conduct. He's to keep following him and following Christ. And he says in verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. And every Christian is called to be different than the world. We are to live in the world, but not live like the world. We are to be distinct from the world, recognizably different than the world. Can that be said of you this week? Paul is rehearsing to Timothy the work that God has done in his life these years since God saved him on the road to Damascus. And he's urging him to follow him as he follows Christ. Look again, verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. And he lists out these, these eight areas of life that God had changed Paul, and he urges Timothy to follow him. Paul says that he is to first follow his teaching. This is doctrine. It's, it's what he taught and how he taught. And people can get so bent out of shape when we say the word doctrine, but every single one of us here this morning is following some doctrine. You are all doctrinal people. Everyone is. You are following a set of beliefs that guide the way in which you live. We all have doctrine. And our lives are a battleground for different gods. Every single person in this world has a set of doctrines that they live for and a God that they worship. So, so if someone says, I don't care about doctrine, it's how you live that matters, 
they are ironically promoting the doctrine of justification by works. They are proposing that God, what God really wants is a good life. And the response can be similar when someone claims that it doesn't matter which, which religion you belong to because all religions are alike and no one should be able to hell, be held to a particular doctrine of God. Yet that assumes that God is not holy and that he does not hold people responsible for how they live. In other words, to say no one should be held to a particular view of God is to assume and promote a particular view of God. To say doctrine about God doesn't matter is in itself a statement of doctrine about God. It all does matter. You see, friends, we're doctrinal people. Doctrine does matter, and Paul wants Timothy to follow his doctrine, his, his teaching, because his doctrine was ultimately about God and glorifying God by preaching the gospel. What's your doctrine? Where do you get your doctrine? Do you get your doctrine from Fox News? Your favorite television preacher? ESPN? Twitter? Where do you get your doctrine? Is it from the scriptures? Does your doctrine concern you or encourage you? Paul then says, follow my conduct. This is his way of life. This is how he lived as a leader, as a Christian. He writes in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, and you became imitators of, of us and of the Lord. Because Paul knew himself as apostle to be following Christ, he did not hesitate to invite others to follow himself. See, this isn't prideful, friends, because Paul is inviting people to compare his life to Jesus Christ. And false teachers want you to follow them, but they don't want you to follow them too closely. They don't want to be compared to anyone. They want you and your stuff, but they usually don't want your prying eyes peering into their life. Do as I say, not as I do. Phony ministries and phony preachers try to hide their lives and they usually don't invite people into their lives to watch them, to learn from them, to emulate them. But Paul says, follow my conduct. Watch me as I follow Jesus Christ. What is your conduct of life? Are you following Christ? So that if someone were to follow your way of life, they would follow Jesus also? See, leadership in the church is about following Jesus and inviting others to come follow you as you follow him. Leaders here, elders here, could those who follow us say that we're following Jesus? Or are we just following ourselves, our own agenda? This is part of discipleship in the church. As you follow Jesus, others will follow you and, and learn to follow Jesus because we should all be about the business of helping others follow Jesus. And Paul warns Timothy in this first letter to watch how he lives his life. He says in 1 Timothy 4, 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And leaders, you need to listen our teaching and our, our conduct must match the scriptures. 
men in ministry fail because they lose sight of their walk with the Lord. And elders, men who desire to be leaders in the church, we need to keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Are we consistent, men? How is your speech? Does it line up with what you believe? How is your doctrine? Is it truly biblical? Do we really believe what we say we believe? And do we act on that? If our church is truly going to grow, and I'm not meaning numbers. I don't care about numbers. I mean spiritually. Then we need men whose conduct and teaching line up with the word of God. Who keep a close watch on their lives. Who regularly repent and walk closely with Jesus. And frankly, we need more men willing to step up and follow Jesus and be willing to lead others. Paul continues and says, to follow my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. First, my aim in life, it, it just means his purpose for life. He had a plan for his life. He had a main concern for his life. And what was Paul's great purpose in life, his aim in life? He was living for something greater than pleasure or money or personal fame. Instead, he says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's great aim in life was to finish his ministry of testifying to the gospel for the glory of Christ. That was his aim in life. And his faith, Paul's faith was his reliance, his, his dependence on God. It was never found in himself, but in Christ alone. It is a Godward thought, a sincere trust in God. And Paul also had learned patience. He says, follow my patience. He learned this while serving the Lord. Patience is being able to bear up under, under difficulty. And how many times Paul was yelled at or beaten or dismissed for preaching the gospel. And yet it didn't cause him to love no less those that he desired to preach the gospel to. So he can say, follow with me, my patience and my love. And he loved people with an agape love. It's loving them for their own good. He was willing to endure for the sake of the gospel. And they needed to hear and understand the truth. And Paul was willing to be the one who would bring it to them. And he says, keep following this. He, he endured also. He says, follow my steadfastness, which is a perseverance towards those that needed hope. And this is especially seen in hard times. And Paul experienced hard times. The last two things that Paul mentions to Timothy to follow after and to learn from is his persecutions and his sufferings. In verse 11, he, his oppressions, his afflictions. He says, they, they happened to me at a Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. And Paul could have recalled other instances that Timothy had witnessed in Philippi or Ephesus or Rome, but instead he appeals to sufferings that surrounded Timothy's origins. He wanted to concentrate on sufferings that had left an indelible impression on this young man. And so when he says those cities, memories would flood Timothy's mind. And the same happens to us. Right? San Francisco, 1989. New York City, 9-11. Mount St. Helens, 1980. Dallas, 1963. When I say those cities and just the dates, 
I'm sure memories flood your mind. I remember watching the World Series in 1989 and seeing the earthquake affect San Francisco. I remember where I was, what I was doing when the news broke of the terrorist attack on 9-11. My father remembers where he was where Kennedy was shot in Dallas. In fact, I was in Dallas a few weeks ago, and I visited the spot where JFK was shot, and I took a picture of the street. I didn't say anything else. I texted my dad and said, Dad, where am I? And he could just tell by the photo, you're in Dallas. Because it left a mark. If you were born around before 1980, you remember Mount St. Helens. You see, just, just saying the names, just saying the dates and the cities brings back memories. They're real. And they rush to your mind. And the same, I'm sure, was true for Timothy. Paul had been driven by persecution from Antioch in Acts 13 and had to flee to Iconium when the plot to lynch him was uncovered in Acts 14. And Timothy was in Lystra when Paul was stoned. When rocks crashed against Paul's skull and he fell, blood spattered and broken beneath the rubble. He was dead, they thought. His murderers departed, leaving his body for the Christians to recover. And I'm sure in that moment, they're thinking, what are we going to do now? And Paul, their leader, is, is lifeless. And suddenly his eyes pop open. And he starts to get up and says, no funeral for me, boys. Let's go back into the city. What a memory that must have been for Timothy. I'm sure just the, just the city would have brought really quickly into his mind the images of what, Ma, what Paul experienced and it played over and over in his mind and heart. And remembering what God had done in the life of Paul would bring a steeled conviction that he could trust God with his own life and ministry. And he says to Timothy, from them all, the Lord rescued me. Which is almost the exact quote from Psalm 34 where David celebrates his deliverance from his enemies. God is the ultimate rescuer, friends. He has delivered his people again and again throughout time. God always rescues his people, either in this life or the next. Do you believe that? See, God is in the business of rescuing. And he's also in the business of transforming us into his likeness. And as you look over this list that Paul gives to Timothy in this verse 10, 11, which one of these is most absent in your life right now? Scan of it. Look again at verse 10. Just read it. Which one of these is most absent in your life right now? Which one of these would you be unwilling for anyone to follow you in? Are we following biblical doctrine for life? Does our conduct, the way we live, line up with our doctrine? What is the aim of your life right now, this morning? Are you aiming at glorifying God with your life? Do we have the same faith, the same reliance on God as Paul, willing to wait on the Lord to work and loving those that we're called to minister to? 
Are we persevering in the tasks that God has placed in our lives? What is it that we need to be praying about for God to change in our lives, friends? Now, again, if you were to leave this place this morning with a a do-good attitude that you're just going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, then I have failed as a preacher. And if you're reading and listening this morning, as we look over these verses, we sense our need for help. We sense our inability to do this ourselves. Paul was a mighty, faithful apostle. How can we possibly follow his example in our lives? How are we to persevere and maintain godliness in this world? Paul said earlier to Timothy in his first letter that Jesus himself is the mystery of godliness. Jesus gave us the ultimate example. Jesus was the ultimate picture of humility, the ultimate picture of integrity and generosity. His religion was not a show, but a demonstration of power. He walked by faith. He taught with authority. He lived with an eternal purpose. He displayed love like no other. He was patient. It was unparalleled to anyone else. And this truly innocent man suffered a criminal's death and took our punishment and gave us his righteousness. Jesus was truly the greatest example of godliness. But friends, you need more than just an example. An example won't get us through the next week. We need power. And we cannot find that power in ourselves. It only comes from God. And he provided it. Through his victorious resurrection, Jesus conquered over our greatest enemies, ascended to the Father's right hand, and then poured out his Holy Spirit to the church. And as believers, this morning, believer, we are united with him. And we live this life through our glorious union with Jesus Christ. And we remind ourselves of our relationship with him through our daily communion with Jesus. We have been crucified with him, raised with him, and seated with him, as Paul says to the Colossians. Christ now lives in us, brothers and sisters. And isn't this good news? Isn't this the best news you've ever heard? You don't have to slog away this week all on your own. Because if you're in Jesus Christ, you don't live on your own. By the power of the risen Christ, we press on in godliness, keeping our focus on him who gives us strength. And I want to be clear for those that are here this morning that are not Christians about what Christianity teaches. There is one God who made all of us. And we have sinned against him. And we have done what we wanted rather than what he told us to do. We have rebelled against him. And so he is rightly committed to punishing us as our sins rightly deserve. But in God's great mercy, he came in Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, and lived a perfect life with no punishment of his own to bear. And Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, for all of those who would ever turn from their sins and trust in him. And he rose to new life, and he offers us new life as well. If we'll turn from our sins, if we turn from our trust in ourselves and trust in him alone. And friends, I pray that that will be true of you this morning. I pray that you would turn from your sins, trust in yourself, and trust in Christ alone. And I want to encourage you to talk to 
with a friend who invited you this morning or even someone in your row. And I'll be here after the service and I'd love to talk. The rest of this sermon, the rest of this time in church this morning will mean nothing if you're not in Jesus Christ. So that's the godly conduct. That's point number one. Number two, godly desires. What are your desires for life? What are your desires for this year or this month or this week? We all have desires, plans. We, we want something. We have longings and yearnings that we desire, that we long to satisfy. Do your longings, do your desires line up with living a godly life? Paul says in verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Spurgeon says, Birds do not peck at sour fruit, but they wage war upon the sweet and ripe fruit. Holy men must, be, must expect to be misrepresented, misinterpreted, and often willfully maligned, while hypocrites have the reward and undeserved homage. And now maybe this morning you were thinking that living a godly life is optional for the Christian. Perhaps you believe that you can be a Christian and not be godly. But there are no verses in the Bible that support that lifestyle. Being a Christian means we are to live a godly life. You cannot separate the two. You cannot be ungodly and be a Christian. You will sin as a believer, but your life should be not dominated by sin, of unconfessed and harboring sin continually. As I said last week, Christians are repenters. To be Christian means we are continually confessing and repenting and turning from sin. We're keeping a short account with God. So all who call themselves Christian will desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And Paul says we should expect persecution. Persecution involves any form of mistreatment for the sake of the gospel. If you're being persecuted because you're a jerk, well, that's not what Paul is talking about here. Jesus prepared us for this. In John's gospel, he says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus warned us. Those that persecuted him are, are coming after us. Paul knew that this life, Paul knew this about his life because right after God saved him, as I read earlier, he was sent to find Ananias and the Lord said to him about Paul, the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul was going to suffer and he did for the sake of the gospel. And Paul uses this a, a, a future passive verb in this passage in 2 Timothy. He says, will be persecuted, meaning that it should be expected to happen to us in the future. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Did you expect persecution when you turned to follow Christ? Did the preacher or teacher who shared the gospel with you explain that persecution is coming for you? It is. Race car drivers expect to have crashes. Football players and coaches expect injuries. Policemen expect violence. Soldiers expect to be shot at. Christians 
should expect persecution. Why? Because proclaiming the gospel, telling people they are wrong, which is what the gospel proclamation is, will always get a reaction. You will either bear fruit with repentance of a person whom God has done the work of salvation in their hearts already, or you will experience defiance or anger or hostility or of one who defies God. We won't be persecuted all the time or even every time, but it will happen for the Christian if they're walking with the Lord and preaching the good news. But those who are in the world and not in Christ will not be persecuted. Why? Because the world sees nothing in them to persecute. Friends, what should our response be to persecution? We should not threaten the world in return. We should turn around and love the very ones who persecute us as Jesus did. The holiness and strangeness of Christians threatens a culture that assumes recognizing differences between people is dangerous. But we are different, and we play to a different audience, and we proclaim that a difference exists between saved and unsaved people. By recognizing these differences, we implicitly proclaim that Christ is Lord over all the earth, and this confronts people right where they live, and they don't like it, and they lash out. And still, Christ's words are a matter of fact. He says, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. This is the way he went. And we must go that way as well. And we should be faithful to teach this in our discipleship of others. As we train them, they should, Christians should understand they should expect persecution. Paul confesses this when he sent Timothy out of ministry in 1 Thessalonians 3, 2 and 3. He says, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. We were destined for this, friends. Spurgeon was right. Birds do not peck at sour fruit, but they wage war upon the sweet and ripe fruit. And things will not get any better. Paul says that evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. These false teachers are the evil people and the imposters. A religious imposter is a person on the outside, like a magician that's, that's hiding their, themselves, their tricks. They're, they're charlatans that begin seducing others, and in the end, they become seduced. And the lesson for us is the way of sin is downhill, friends. Going from bad to worse. These imposters like Janice and Jambres that he mentioned before as an example will pro progress downward to a fate far worse than persecution. It's true. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If those without Christ are God's enemies, then those who know Jesus Christ become the opponents of Satan. If anyone believes in Jesus, lives by a different standard than the world, you'll become an enemy. You will have trouble in this world. But I want you to hear me this morning, friends. It's worth it. For high school and college students that are here, I mean, to listen. It is worth it to follow Jesus Christ.
instead of following the world. You will be mocked. Perhaps you already have this week. You'll be threatened or looked down upon by your classmates and friends. But following Jesus Christ is always worth it. There's something interesting about Christianity, about following Jesus, because all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is very blunt with us. He's not afraid to tell us the worst, the most painful cost of being a Christian. You notice in the Gospels, he doesn't hide it from us. We're to carry our cross. We're to die to self. We're to not worship possessions. We're to hate our family and love God. There is absolutely no small print with Jesus. It's all big, bold letters. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But Satan hides his worst and shows only you the best. And there is small print with Satan. It's on the back page, covered and disguised. And on the front page, following the world are the lies of Satan. From Genesis 3, you will not surely die. Did God really say? From Jesus' temptation, all these I will give you, all these I will give you, if you just fall down and worship me. But on the back page, all, all the way at the bottom, in small print, hardly able to, to recognize and read is this. And after the fleeting pleasures, you will suffer with me forever in hell. Why is Jesus willing to show us his worst as well as his best, while Satan will only talk about his best? Matthew Henry says, Satan shows the best but hides the worst because his best will not make up for his worst, but Christ will abundantly. So students that are here and have a reprieve for today and who head back into the world tomorrow, listen. The call of Jesus is not just a call to persecution and suffering and self-denial. It's also a call to a great banquet, a great meal seated with the host, our Lord and his kingdom. And we're also promised a glorious Resurrection, where all of the losses that you will experience in this life will be repaid. And he promises that God will be with you in this life. You'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he'll give you the strength you need. And he will defend you. And he will comfort you. And he will guide you. And he'll hold you up. And friends, when you sit down to calculate the cost of following Jesus... When you weigh the worst and the best, Jesus is always worth it. Abundantly worth it. Paul says to us, for when I consider the sufferings of this present time, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And from this old guy up here, students, just listen. Jesus is always worth it. So turn from your trust in yourself 
of your fear of being accepted and run to Jesus. He's always worth it. So we've looked at godly conduct and godly desires, last, godly learning. Timothy wasn't the way he was because he learned it all by himself. No, he had others that had poured into him. He was discipled. He had people in his life that helped him understand the Bible and helped him to follow Jesus. And now Paul encourages them to press on. He, he writes in verse 14, but as for you, continue what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is giving a command here, a, a present active imperative. Continue in what you have learned and what you firmly believe. Keep believing what you have believed. Keep believing your beliefs. And it sounds plain, so, so pedestrian, the way he writes it, so ordinary. But this is, friends, the Christian life. It is perseverance and following Jesus day in and day out. To remain where you are at Timothy, he says, keep continuing to follow what you've learned. Keep being convinced of what you've learned. Keep believing and he needed to stay put, even though persecution was coming. He needed to continue in this. And for me, for some reason during this prep, the picture that came to my mind was that of a baseball player when the pitch was coming inside. You guys know that baseball happens in October, right? No, I mean, not here in Seattle. I got your attention, good. A baseball player, right? The game is on the line. The bases are chock full, and the pitch comes inside. Right? A good coach says, you, you remain. You stay. And I remember as a youth pastor, I always wanted to, to be where my youth were. This was before I was married, so I had lots of time and energy. And, and, and I wanted to be where the youth were, so I'd go to the games, and I'd go to their school, and I'd go to their homes. And one day I visited a kid in our, in our youth group in the evening at his family's home, and they're in their backyard after dinner, and they're they were sports fanatics, really, and they loved baseball. And they installed this batting cage in their backyard. And, and so Don would, would pitch to his sons, Matthew and Philip, and he was teaching them to stay put. Even when the pitch was coming inside and when the game was on the line, right, they needed to stay put. And so he would throw many pitches, and they were just cranking them and hitting them. And, and, and then sooner or later, one would just sail in, and he'd plunk them. And I remember as a youth pastor going, man, I'm going to call CPS on you, buddy. And then they hit for a while, and they're like, Jeff, your turn. I'm like, oh, I'm here to watch. <laughs> I'd get in there, fierce, fierce, excuse me, first few pitches, I'd, I'd hit it. And then sure enough, third pitch comes in, he just beans me in my back. And he just smile. <laughs> and then the point here is, is, and he's right, you know, for the sake of baseball, to stay. Continue in, you're there. Continue in this. Don't back out. Don't flinch. Continue in what you have learned and how you firmly believe, knowing from who you learned it and how from your childhood, see now he's racing back in his memories, how your childhood, when you've been equated with the sacred writings. And Timothy had been discipled from a very young age by his mother and his grandmother. And he was, he was trained by now his mentor, ministry of Paul. He'd been convinced of the gospel through these these three people through Eunice and Lois and Paul. What a special ministry moms and grandmas have. Learning 
from both their lips and their lives. And what did they read to him? But the sacred writings. These are the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not a dead letter to be left behind that we detach from because we have the New Testament now. No, we're to study and to read both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Why? Because Paul says they're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible is a book that leads us to salvation. Scripture does not save us. Jesus saves us. But the only way to know and understand who Jesus is to make us wise for salvation is through the Scriptures. And the gospel, we believe, is a biblical gospel. The gospel of the Old Testament and the New Testament vouched for by both the prophets of God and the apostles of Christ. And the Bible is a book that leads us to salvation. And some are amazed that you could use the Old Testament to lead someone to Christ, but the apostles showed us to be true, and so does Jesus. The passage in Luke 24 most clearly displays this. These two men are walking along, and here comes Jesus, and he says to him, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets had spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And he began with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Wait, Jesus didn't use the book of Romans to share the gospel? No, he walked them through the Old Testament and he interpreted them that these scriptures were talking about him. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Can you imagine the conversation? You guys remember Genesis 3? He bruised my heel, but I crushed his head. You know Isaiah, the lamb that was led to slaughter you? I'm, I'm that lamb, and I'm here. I did that for you. See, friends, all of the Bible is about Jesus. And, and Jesus is crystal clear to these two on the road. It is foolish to read the Old Testament and understand that Jesus is the point. The Old Testament promises and points forward to the Messiah and his mission. And the New Testament unpacks the fulfillment of this glorious promise. And as Timothy came to faith, he understood that Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system, the Passover lamb, the tabernacle, and all the array of messianic prophecies. And he had been made wise for salvation through the holy writings. Shailin says the Old Testament, Jesus Christ is concealed. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ is revealed. The Old Testament anticipates Christ. The New Testament explains Christ. He is promised in the beginning. He's there in the middle. And he's held up at the end as the object of our worship for all of eternity. Can I get an amen? Wow. We should read the Bible as Christians and understand that Jesus is the point. It's not that we ignore the historical setting of the Old Testament text, but we are Christians and so we read and study in context of the Bible as a whole. And Jesus is the hero of the Bible. He is the point. Are you reading the Bible that way? The Bible is a book that leads us to salvation. The Bible is the book that brings growth in our lives. Are you continuing to learn the Bible? If you're not reading the Bible for your own, you're not growing. We need to be Bible people. I mean, we're a Bible church. We need to be men and women of the word. That's what we should be known for. And as we 
end this morning, I want to ask a few questions. I want you to think through these things this afternoon, this week. Just two questions. First, who is following you? Who is following you? Who are you discipling? Parents, your first and most important discipleship relationships with your kids. So don't feel bad if you're not discipling someone else. You got kids in your home, okay? That's number one. And think of it, parents. Think of it what it would mean if you could say to our kids, but as for you, continue on what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That our kids would follow us as we follow Jesus. That they would follow our teaching, our conduct. That they would follow our aim in life because we want to glorify God. That we would follow our faith, our patience, our love, our steadfastness, our persecutions. And parents, it's not too late. If you haven't done this, start today. Walk with Jesus and teach your kids to follow your example as you follow him. But even for those who don't have kids, keep walking with Jesus. Grandparents, you have a special ministry in the lives of your grandkids. Encourage them to follow you as you follow Jesus. Connect to other people here. If you don't have anyone else, look, look to disciple others. Helping others follow Jesus. That's what Christians do. And so if you call yourself a Christian and you're not doing that, I don't know what you mean by a Christian. This is what Christians do. Second, what are the desires of your life? What are the desires of your life? Are they godly? Are you seeking to please Christ more than yourself? Have you prepared yourself for persecution as you are faithfully proclaiming the gospel? Are you ready to lean in, to continue in what you have heard, what you have learned and follow Christ, even though you may be persecuted? Friends, are you ready to share the hope that you have in Christ this week? If God so happens to open a door, are you ready to share the gospel? Who in your life right now needs to hear the gospel, needs to believe the gospel? Can you think of a name? Praying for them this week. Praying that God would open up opportunities that you could share with them. As I began this morning, I shared the story of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. You know, they counted the cost of following Jesus. They expected persecution for following God, and they were faithful. You know, the day had come. October 16th, 1555, the day of their death for the sake of Christ. John Fox writes that Latimer stood at the stake in Oxford with Dr. Ridley and the fire was put around them, a pile of wood, and he raised his eyes kindly towards heaven and said, God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. 
His body was forcibly penetrated by the fire, and the blood flowed abundantly from the heart as if to verify his constant desire that his heart's blood might be shed in defense of the gospel. And his, he was being tied to the stake, Ridley prayed, O Heavenly Father, I give unto thee most hearty thanks that thou hast called me to be a professor of thee, even unto death. I beseech thee, Lord God, have mercy on this realm of England and deliver it from all her enemies. Ridley's brother had brought some gunpowder for the men to place around their necks so that death could come more quickly. But Ridley suffered greatly. With a loud voice, Ridley cried, Into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. But the wood was green and burned only Ridley's lower parts without touching his upper body. He was heard to repeatedly call out, Lord, have mercy upon me. I cannot burn. Let the fire come on to me. I cannot burn. One of the bystanders finally brought the flames to the top of the pyre to hasten Ridley's death. And it was said by those that saw this that they received the flame as if they were embracing it. Vladimir died much more quickly as the flames quickly rose. Vladimir encouraged Ridley. Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust never shall be put out. Are we willing to light candles here at Edgewood Bible Church? I don't wish for trouble or persecution, but I do desire greatly that the gospel will be preached in and through our lives, church. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let me end with this. Charles Spurgeon said, never did the church so much prosper and so truly thrive as when she was baptized in the blood. The ship of the church never sails so gloriously along as when the bloody spray of her martyrs falls on her deck. We must suffer and we must die if we're ever to conquer this world for Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray for courage. and strength. And we recognize that in our world, in our culture today, we may not die a martyr's death like Latimer and Ridley. But we may die different deaths. We may be maligned by people. We may be hated. We may lose our job We may be jailed, but it's worth it for the sake of the gospel. Father, we acknowledge some of us have strayed 
from you this past week. And we pray that we would be steadfast to follow you more closely this week. We pray for faith to believe in you. We pray for love of others. We pray for clarity of convictions that our conduct lines up with our doctrine. We pray that we would desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus. And so we prepare ourselves to be persecuted for the sake of the gospel. Help us to be gospel people. Help us to not shy away from sharing the good news. And may you light a candle by your grace here at Edgewood that we trust should never be put out. For your honor and for your glory alone. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.